What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. Today on the show, we're sitting with Phil Rubin. He is the president at Their Breath and The Breath Company. We get into a cool conversation really about how to create a kick-ass product, but then also how to position that you know, in a marketplace where there are behemoths already there. So it's really cool from a challenger brand perspective and looking at what they're doing. I enjoyed this a lot. So I think you all will as well. But before we get into that, as always, we put on this show over here at Cave Social. We're a marketing agency. Look, we help companies grow through social media. So whether that's organic content or running your paid campaigns, if you need help, head over to cavesocial.com. We'd love to help you out. All right, without further ado, let's get into this episode. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, joining me is Phil Rubin. He is the president at Therabreath. Phil, how you doing? Good. Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm excited to get into our conversation and talk all things marketing, specifically, you know, really a lot about brand. But before we get into that, I want to hear your story. Tell me and the listeners, how did you find your way into, you know, this career path of marketing? Well, right after college, I was kind of on my way to law school when I started a skateboard company instead. And then it just kind of took off. And what I saw was, you know, I saw the strength of brands, right? Especially with skateboarding, right? You were building counterculture brands and kids would just jump. On, I mean, I was a kid at the time too, but kids would just jump on it if it resonated with them in a particular way, right? Again, it's, they were like building friendships, carrying flags or whatever it was they were doing with those brands. And at that point, I just kind of saw that that was probably more interesting work. And so, you know, basically did a lot of brand building after that. I mean, I did everything from I had a big kind of rave and festival promotion company. I had uh, clothing brands and uh, some retail stores in the Midwest and the West Coast. I sold a brand to a Japanese company when it, like I was in my uh, mid-20s and then just kind of went on to did various development after that. So yeah, so that was kind of my segue from lawyering to branding. I love it. It's it's interesting, right? Like, and then finding your way now to Therabreath, it, it seems like there's, especially in those early days, right? That aha moment around brand when you see people, the skate community is it, it really community is that word there that can help like scale out a brand. I think skating has such a um, accepting community. Like, there's people from all walks of life that I find end up in that. So I think that that's an interesting place to start when you look at it and get the wheels turning for lack of you know no pun intended but to like see okay i can start to do this right and i can start to see these connections and people and how i can connect them with a product that means something to them very cool now before we hit record we were talking a little bit and we were talking about really building a brand and being authentic and these are terms that get thrown around a lot in marketing you go on twitter and somebody says like you know build a brand, be authentic, all of these things. But I want to pass it to you because I think you had a really interesting take just on like, okay, how to actually do that from the inside out. My current experience with Therabreath, right? Therabreath, we're an oral care company. We specialize in mouthwash. We do a, a variety of other products as well. It's a crazy category for a startup to be in, right? Mouthwash has been dominated for 100 plus years by a couple of brands that kind of created the space originally. There isn't a lot of innovation, but it's, I mean, it's a fight over shelf space. Uh, the amount of, um, you know, the access to shelf is limited uh, to a, a number of key retail partners. So how do you do that? What I mean, I was lucky enough to come into the brand where it was 
developed by a dentist. He really focused on making it efficacious, but he wasn't a, a brand builder. He really knew his product and he really understood patients, but that's kind of as far as it went. And so in looking at it, you know, our aha moment was, hey, how do you marry kind of a, I guess, a big brand approach to something, right? Enough where it has the credibility and the kind of the gravity where a consumer says, I will trust, you know, choosing this over a Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble product. How do you come at it? But then how do you keep the specialness of this kind of dentist who, you know, the brand originally started around a, a dentist created a product for his daughter who was having some problems with bad breath. That's a cute kind of uh, a homespun story. And how do you keep that? But you also look at brands like Burt's Bees and, and brands that started out um, small and scaled, but with some integrity, right? And so how do you do that? And so that's kind of, I think, what our focus was, and that was our aha moment, was how do you scale up to that presence while not necessarily, I don't want to say anything bad about competitors, but like without being huge, right? Like when you become huge, there's a natural kind of velocity because of that, right? Because there's so much mass there. It's hard to turn those kinds of ships quickly. So how do we do both? And so our aha moment was, well, let's just focus on making a really just kick-ass product. Um, let's make a product that we can test and trial and compare and realize that we're making by far the best thing in the space. And once we have that, right, we, once we understand that we simply have a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to our door, right, that, that, that homily. So that was our aha uh, moment. Uh, but obviously, we had to supplement all of that with getting a lot of uh, attention as well. But once we had that first piece right. And that's interesting, right? To be like, okay, we're going against giants. Where can we win, right? And to say, okay, oh, we can win with what we can control and that being product quality and looking at product quality, the story, its usage, everything and saying, we're going to double down on making this amazing because when we do win a customer and we win their choice when they walk into you know, CVS and they end up picking TheraBreath, that then they pick it again. And they're not disappointed. And there's a lot of components when you're looking in like, you know, those shelves, like you said, limited space. You also have to not only be recognizable, but trust is such a massive component. People aren't there just picking something random. It's it's There's a health component, right? So to have that dentist who's, who's there, who's backed the formula, has created this to solve a problem for his daughter. All of those things are the great story that then I think, like you said, if you can control what you can control and make a kick-ass product, this is where we're going to be able to start to get more customers one by one, kind of that. It scales once you're able to have the quality product, right? And I think a lot of people go for the cool brand and cool label first. And you see that with a lot of people, white labeling products and things, and they actually don't focus on that R&D and that product development, which is just so crucial. Well, you uh, actually keyed on something really important there. You said the word trust. Right. And that's after we had that bang up product that we knew was different. We knew the user experience was different. We knew that when dentists looked at the users who used the product, they saw an improvement in overall oral health. After we got all past all that, how do we get people to notice? And then that's when we started the conversation about trust specifically, right? Like we got, we wanted to get ahead of it. Not why do you trust us? You've never heard of us, but more specifically, why do you, how, how do you decide what you trust? Case in point, did a really simple straw poll, you know, asked average user, hey, do you know what goes, you know, do you read the label on your sour cream or on your bread? They're like, yeah, absolutely. You know, like, you know, what kind of milk you're buying, what the fat content is? Yes. So what goes into your toothpaste and mouthwash? They're like, I have never looked at that label. Our point was, that's remarkable because outside of water, 
toothpaste and mouthwash, if you're using them as directed, you're going to ingest that more frequently over the course of your lifetime than anything else. What else are you consuming twice a day, every day, as long as you live? But people didn't know what that was. So then at that point, we started to point out the fact that, you know, awareness there was key. And in so doing, we kind of re-engage that conversation of trust, right? Just because it's got a big name on it, is that what leads you to believe in it? And a lot of people, I think, scratch their heads and say, as a matter of fact, no, that kind of fell into that assumption, kind of, you know, hamster wheel. But now that I think about it, no, that doesn't make it any more credible. You know, and so we focused on, like, you look at the back of a label, you understand what the things are. We have formulation guidelines that require fewer ingredients, right? If we can get it down to five or six, that's where we're at. You're never going to see 15 ingredients on the back of our label. And also, as when people started investigating it, another thing that we did, I think, that worked for us is we got a lot of third-party accreditations. We're the only mouthwash product you're going to find that's certified gluten-free, certified kosher, certified halal, certified vegan, vegetarian, ADA, right? So we've got five or six people that we just immediately say, well, maybe you didn't know who we were, but what about all this other stuff that you probably aren't aware of? And so... Trust, you know, that was a key point of entry for us once we, once we're comfortable with pitching the idea that you could trust it, right, more so than anything else that we were competing with, then at that point, that was our on-ramp. So, to speak. yeah, it's cool to see, right? Taking that educational standpoint with the content and the framing to say, okay, like, hey, you look behind and you know exactly, like you said, you know exactly the ingredients when you buy a oatmeal, you flip it around and you look at it. But to have the, um, the aha moment for the consumer that says, hey, have you ever done that with, you know, mouthwash or toothpaste? And the answer is no, because like you said, right, we're just on the hamster wheel. I just go to the store and I buy the one that I've always bought and I don't know why. But I also, I will say this, it's like my brand loyalty is almost zero right now when it comes to like oral products because I just go and pick and I'm like, oh, these are the three names that I've heard before. And I just pick one and go. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's definite, you know, even just on this conversation, it's it's the light bulb's gone off for me where I'm like, I've never looked and now I'm going to go look, you know? It's interesting how, you know, if you can do that um, and then like you said, appeal to a couple communities, the vegan community, someone who needs something who's kosher, halal, et cetera. Now you're just making decisions easier for them too. When they see that and they go, okay, I want to solve this problem that I have, i.e. bad breath, but I'm going to do so in a way that treats animals humanely and doesn't have animal testing. Okay, great. This is, you know, now it's a no brainer decision for me, which it's taking your product from being, you know, a choice to the choice. And it's such an interesting thing how you can do that by just like, you know, you said, have fewer ingredients, be kosher, be halal, be, be vegan. And now it's the choice for me. Like say I am vegan, it just becomes the choice. I think that's so, so interesting. Now, if we look outward, right, to marketing as a whole, we talked about this for people who are listening and are, are working in a brand, maybe a startup starting their own brand. But I want to talk a little bit about really, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of like, it's not prom, you're not running for prom king or prom queen when it comes to with your brand that you have to tell your story consistently and really be authentic over the long haul. Can you just like walk me through in your experience, I guess, some of the pitfalls that maybe you've seen either in the oral health industry or outside where you've seen brands, you know, go awry and, and chasing things like, you know, shiny labels and billboards without maybe solidifying a product? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, with an oral care space, I'll just give you an example, and then I'll backtrack. But in the oral care space, I mean, charcoal toothpaste that hit the market hard last year and stained sinks worldwide. You know, that was that was the thing where everybody started jumped on it and started chasing it like crazy. 
I can trust pitfalls, but basically you hear the way that I talk about my brand, right? Like you can hear that I believe in it, right? That I think that we're doing something that is at least important within our category. That's why we're disrupting the space. And that's why we also wanted to make something like the way we wanted to make it so we could have that passion for it. Because I think the key measure of a brand, especially when you're rolling out, is evangelism. Will people who pick it up for the first time that have nothing to do with you tell others that this, I've discovered something that's important, right? If they do, then you're definitely you're onto something, right? And I guess the pitfalls, even kind of in light of the conversation you and I had before we started, was is trying to fake that, right? Trying to hire that, trying to influencer engineer that, rather than starting a go and saying, no, I just absolutely positively believe and it's not like a religion. you got to have concrete basis for why you believe that this thing is important. But I believe that what we're doing is something that's relevant. It's not like that other guys, but yellow. <laughs> but it's, right. it's relevant. And I think the pitfalls in that tend to be that if that isn't baked in at the beginning, those stress cracks will start to show, especially as companies start to grow. Because then at that point, the, part of the culture isn't a belief in the product. Part of the culture is accommodating things to make other things happen. And I think that's a, to speak to charcoal toothpaste, that's an excellent example of that, right? People jumped to using that ingredient because they saw other people were using that ingredient and they saw that there was a short-term market demand and everyone wants to get ahead of it. But that's not really how you disrupt, right? That's not how you innovate. That's, it's, it's chasing and chasing tends to be a, you know, spiral down to the bottom and chasing doesn't really bring anything important to the consumer other than potentially cheaper stuff, right? But it's not how we grow. Yeah, it's that chasing fads instead of defining your own narrative, right? You'll see that, you know, as Art Basel two years ago, they put the banana up with the duct tape and then every brand was using duct tape and putting their product up. And I said, that's cute, but like, I'm not seeing these premier brands that have been around forever tape up their product with that, you know, and I'm not seeing them. And it's like, and that's obvious, that's a one-off thing that I think in social you can do if it's, if, if the fad weaves into your story, I think it makes sense. But for some companies, it didn't at all. And I was like, okay, I'm much more into interested, at least in this, when you're a startup and you have limited resource into like really creating that evergreen content or marketing efforts that are products that are not chasing fads. You know, you talked about influencer engineering launches and I, my mind goes to fit teas and detox teas and like every influencer is just promoting a tea and I don't even know, I can't remember one brand. Right. But it was just like it seemed that that was this launch path for these brands. And now they're lost in obscurity with with every other one who's doing that. Right. And it's this emphasis on these promotion channels versus product quality, product story, uh, being authentically yourself. And then obviously the golden goose, which is shelf space a lot of the times, which I do want to talk about that as well, like hurdles that, you know, you've gone um, gone through to get on shelves. Yeah, no, certainly we can touch on um, all that stuff. The stuff with teeth, I mean, at this point, what you're talking about, right? eBay, when it just started for a short time, you know, just like NFTs right now, for a short time, there were quality goods and quality buyers until the thing went kind of south. Same thing kind of happened within the social space. But eventually, these places become swap meets and flea markets, right? Or they become so co-opted by major brands that at that point, it's become NASCAR, one or the other, right? And that is because sponsors come in and then they start asking everyone to kind of flock goods. And in terms of detox teas, I guarantee you that they're all selling different brands of detox tea that are all probably originating in the same Chinese plant. Yep. <laughs> right? So it's either, yeah, so it either goes that way where it yeah, becomes kind of a yeah, swap meet or it becomes, you know, yeah, absolutely dominated by a few key players. 
And I, I guess a lot of that has to do with the fact that the marketplaces aren't that sophisticated. You know, ultimately you look at a marketplace like an Amazon or any of the emerging Walmart.com marketplaces, and they are more mature. So it seems like they'll be able to maybe resist some of this. But when you're talking about all lots of independent actors, like lots of eBay sellers, lots of influence sellers, you know, it, that tends to be what we see. And it comes back to your original point, right? Which is if there's no innovation, if you're white labeling, if you're white labeling all from the same Chinese plant and it's all the same product, then now, I mean, sure, the brand story could be innovative, but that's a stretch. <laughs> you know, it's like, for me, it's like, if it's that same product, and it's just a me too product, and it's T1 versus T2 versus, you know, T3, and they're all really the same with just a different label out front, I think eventually the consumer catches on. You know, it's interesting. On the one hand, yes, they do, right? And on the other hand, even when they do, it still works sometimes. And you look at examples of, okay, great example is baseball hats. A baseball hat costs about three seventy-five dollars make, I know, back from my skateboard days, right? There are guys out there selling baseball hats for 18 bucks. There's guys out there selling baseball hats for 300 Now, the consumer knows that the $300 hat didn't really cost so much more than the $18 hat to make. But putting that hat on, it's the NASCARing of the consumer, like we were saying, right? Putting that hat on has a value to that consumer. And in a sense, by using influencers and everything else, marketers are trying to create that kind of, you know, logoing of the consumer in every facet from tea to tissue paper to whatever. It, some things aren't, right? Like, weirdly enough, your gas station, there's no, it seems to be zero brand loyalty there. But in lots of other stuff, almost everything that goes on that belt that goes past the checker. Yeah, the brand demand with things like, I mean, I'll admit, it's like sneakers. And it's like, I know, they cost Nike $3 to make the pair of Jordans, but it's limited release and it's the colorway that I like. So I'm like, take my money. <laughs> yeah, that's the part where in some of those makeup brands and stuff, it does work. And I, like you said, for and Halo Top ice cream is a white label or they started as a white label product. But I think that they're the exception, not the rule. I think a lot of the times just from the amount of how popular white labeling has become, you know, you're seeing it with different product sets, whether it's now it seems like CBD, everything is a CBD product and it's all white labeled. And I'm like, okay, but to come back to your point, when you create your own and you have the ingredients, that's where you really have this pathway to innovation and you have ability to change. You're also not putting your brand into somebody else's hands where if somebody messes up something at a plant and it's not yours or that shipment can't get there or they just decide they don't want to fulfill like all of those things now you're putting your brand in the hands of somebody else and that to me is a little scary too i mean you have to have distribution partners manufacturing partners but not owning the ip to me is a little terrifying sometimes when it comes to uh product development Oh, I'm with you. I mean, as a matter of fact, I mean, about five, six years ago, when we were kind of getting under the hood and a lot of other stuff, we saw that, you know, we had been developed, you know, when Dr. Katz originally started developing, um, he was developing with a variety of labs. And so we didn't necessarily see complete clear cut paths to IP on everything. So we one of the first things I did was go back and renegotiate a lot of that stuff to make sure that that all rested with us. Because that's the other, you make a very, very great observation there, which is when you're small, you kind of compromise on some of these things to, in order to have the money to scale. And when you do, you could be over a barrel. So you got to kind of watch that stuff. You know, you got to watch the wake so to speak. Shoe Knight, if anyone who's listening, go download or reach Shoe Dog, sorry, by Phil Knight. And he talks, Nike did the same thing. And it was like where they were using distribution manufacturing partners. And then eventually they said, okay, we need to like go kind of, as you were saying, you did go back and like rework those deals and 
make sure there's some exclusivity with those partners. Yeah. I mean, and again, luckily enough where we've kind of scaled out of that stuff and we now have, you know, our own factories all over the world that we can kind of, we just, we just, I got to send you a video. Uh, we just sent up a fully robotic line in South Korea where the, the entirety of the manufacturing process is start to finish is never touched by human hands. It's amazing stuff, but it's a long way from, yeah, from when our original R and D through contract labs and all that other sort of stuff. Cool. Well, Phil, this has been uh, awesome. I've had a lot of fun. For people who want to find out more about TheraBreath, where should they head? We've got a website, therabreath.com. Check that out. We're also available in, I think we're close to 120,000 points of distribution in the U.S. alone. So you can find us in just about any store. Check us out on Amazon. You know, Drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Everyone, I will put links to TheraBreath on the show notes page. So if you're all looking for their products, you can go click the website and check them out. Phil, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton, and I'll catch you next time. Oh.